If God were to speak to your heart today and tell you to do something, would you do it? If God were to point His finger on your life and say, this is what I want you to spend the rest of your life doing, would you do it? Would you give yourself to His request? Would you give yourself to His command to do what He tells you to do? I want us to pray, and then I want us to look at Acts chapter 20, a pivotal key passage in understanding what ministry is all about and how we are to be committed to God speaking to us about our call to share the gospel. Would you pray with me, please? Father, speak to me this morning as you already have. And even in the time of preaching, Father, I pray that you would speak and confirm things to my heart. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my Lord and my Redeemer, in whose name I pray. Amen. I'm a little worried about something that's taking place in our culture. Being a sports uh, fan, I don't think I'm a fanatic, but being a sports fan, I get a little concerned when I see these freshmen and sophomores and juniors in college who are calling press conferences and they're with a high-powered agent and a lawyer or two or three lawyers. They say, I'm going to turn pro. I've enjoyed my time at this particular university, but I've got to look out for myself. I've got to do what's best for me. I've got to do what's best for my family. I've got to do what's best for my future. And so I'm going to forsake my last year of eligibility on the college level, and I'm going to turn pro. Well, why are you doing that? Well, there's a lot of money. My family has needs. And there are all kinds of reasons that they give. The bottom line reason is selfishness. It's all in that statement, I've got to do what's best for me. Never remembering that if that major university had not given them the platform to display their talents, they would have been like thousands of other young athletes who play in the streets of America who are better than they are, but either didn't have the high school abilities educationally or have the platform to show their talents, and they never got the chance that these athletes got in the first place. They forget the one that brought them to the platform. They forget the one that opened the door for them to display the gifts, the natural raw talent that they have. And they've just got to do what's best for themselves. It's so much like America today. It's so much like the church too often. For we are far more consumed with our titles than with our testimony. We want our positions and we want power but we don't want to be known as people of prayer. We want our privileges without the responsibility. We want what's good for us, not what's good for others. We want the benefits of the Christian life, but we don't want to be used of God to bring a blessing to anybody's life. I want to talk about what it takes to be a team player. And I think the initial passage that I see that in when we look at the life of Paul, is what he records and Luke records for us in Acts chapter 20 and verse 24. And I want to highlight how Paul expended himself for other people. <clears throat> but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus 
to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Every one of us, whether we are a Paul or an ordained minister or a layperson, whatever we are, whoever we are, all of us have been called to testify of the grace of God. You and I have that call on our lives. It is not one that we can opt out of. It's not an elective in the course of Christianity. We have a call on our lives. In verse 27 he says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Now let me tell you one of the concerns I have with the church growth movement. There's a lot going on in the church growth movement that is good. Churches ought to grow. I think the book of Acts tells us that when the Holy Spirit comes in power and when people are under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is preached, that men will be drawn to Him and churches will in fact grow. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. The problem that I have with many aspects of the church growth movement today is what people are cutting out to make the church acceptable to lost people. What we are taking out of our message so that it makes lost people feel more comfortable. I listened to a message this week by my friend Ron Dunn, and he said that there is a church in America, a Southern Baptist church, that is trying to design a secular worship service. That doesn't even make sense, does it? Why would you have a secular worship service? What's worship for if it's not for Jesus? They're trying to design a service where Jesus will not even be mentioned so that lost people will feel comfortable in coming to church. My friends, listen. Lost people ought to feel uncomfortable because if you don't know you're lost, you can never know how to be saved. We have to define the whole purpose of God and we cannot back away from the cross or the blood or the resurrection or the virgin birth or its justification or sanctification or any of those things or holiness, you name it. We cannot back away. Paul says, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Listen, I want you to know without apology, I don't want to grow a church if we've got to compromise the gospel to do it. And we won't grow this church if it requires a compromising of the clear mandate of Scripture on what becoming a Christian is all about. There's a clear word from God, and we must not shrink back from it just to get numbers. That's not what we're into. We are talking about changing lives, not raising numbers. Now, he picks up in verse 31. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. I think one of the keys to having the kind of heart and being the kind of team that God wants us to be is we have to have compassion. We have to have a broken heart. God needs to break through to us this week and speak to our hearts and say to us what He wants to say, and we're receiving it. And He may tell us we have sin in our lives that need to be confessed. He may tell us that we're carrying around some things that we need to let go of. He may tell us there's a relationship to straighten out. Whatever it is, the gospel must be shared, and the gospel must be lived with a broken and compassionate heart. It is the heart of Christ that motivates us to care about other people. In verse 33, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. Paul had the mentality that every minister must have, and that is we're not in this for the money. We're not in this for what we get out of it. We are in this for the cause of Christ. Verse 35, In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. There's a 
key to ministry in verses 24 through 35, and that is attitude. The attitude in which we do what God has called us to do is crucial. And there are ten words that will make a difference in your attitude. They are these. I don't have to survive. I do have to serve. I don't have to survive. It doesn't have to please me. It doesn't have to meet my agenda. It doesn't have to scratch my back. It doesn't have to make me feel good. But I am called of God to give of myself in the service of Jesus Christ to do what He tells me to do in whatever way He tells me to do it. I am to give of myself. I am to expend my energies for the gospel. Now, why are people self-centered? Well, there are about four reasons that I want to give you. Number one, they're comfortable with the status quo. Remember when in John's writing of the Revelation, Jesus said that you're neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm? You see, we get scared of those who are hot because we say they're fanatics. Dr. Havner said the average new believer has to backslide to have fellowship with the average church member. Because they're so excited about the Lord, they've got to backslide to have fellowship with people that have gotten over being excited about the Lord. And he says, you're not hot, and you're not cold. You're not dead, liturgical. You know, if you get away from a fire far enough, and you get cold enough, you'll start looking for a fire to warm up to. He says, I wish you were hot or cold, but you're just comfortable. You're lukewarm. You're comfortable. And John goes on to record the words of our Lord Jesus, and he says, when you're comfortable, it makes me nauseated. It makes me sick. You know, we think that if we're lukewarm, and if we're better than some, but not as bad as others, that God's going to be pleased with us. God says, I'm not accepting that. I don't accept that. The second thing that happens is, we begin to have worldly desires that override God's commands. We have worldly desires that override God's commands. You got a letter this week from the finance committee of this church asking you to contribute and to be a part of the finances of the church this summer. But you know, it's that trip to Disney World, and it's that trip to the beach, and it's that trip to Panama City, and it's the trip to the mountains and all of that, and we'll leave and take God's money on vacation with us. And God's business still goes on. That's a worldly desire over God's commands. We had a uh, uh, garage sale last week, and uh, all kind of folks came up. I, I'm convinced people buy anything. Uh, but I, I, learned something in, I learned something in that garage sale. Today's style is tomorrow's junk. Everything you've ever sold in a garage sale or given away to Goodwill or somebody else, you had to have at some point in your life. You couldn't do without it. You had to have it. You charged it, paid 18 21% interest on it. Why? Because you had to have that thing. It was vital for you. You convinced yourself. You talked yourself into it. You agreed with it. Your family agreed with it. Everybody, oh, we got to have this. We got to have this. Why we got to have it? Because one day we're going to sell it in a garage sale. That's why we got to have it. I told my dad he had never died of natural causes. The attic was going to collapse on him. He hadn't thrown away anything since 1948. Desiring the worldly things, overriding God's command of giving of ourselves. Number three, obedience is costly. We don't want to obey God. We're 
comfortable with being self-centered and being in a status quo environment because obedience is costly. Jesus said, you've got to count the cost if you're going to follow me. Number four, we are interested in survival, not service. We're interested in survival, not service. Paul said, I don't have to survive. That's in essence what he said. But I do have to serve. I have to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you're in Acts chapter 20. Turn back a few pages to John chapter 12 and John chapter 15. For I want you to see this idea of dying to ourselves, expending ourselves for other people, dying to the life of selfishness, obeying God, and then becoming a servant of God. John chapter 12 and verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and what? Dies. It remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears what? Much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. John 15 and verse 4. These thoughts run together in John 12 and John 15. Jesus is speaking about our relationship to Him and our relationship to this world and how we are supposed to live. And in verse 4 He says, The branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in Me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in Me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from Me you can do Nothing. Now, when you abide, he who abides in me and I abide in him, you bear much fruit. If you're bearing much fruit, all you're doing is servicing the vine. You're just servicing the vine. You're just grafted into him, and you are servicing him, and your life is producing an evidence of being attached to the vine. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I, he probably didn't mean that. I'm sure Jesus meant, apart from me, you can do something, but not much. Well, you can do something apart from Jesus. Churches do it every week. You can preach apart from Jesus. You can sing apart from Jesus. You can work in a church apart from Jesus. You can do something. You can be busy about church work. But your something, my friend, is nothing in Jesus' eyes if it's not done by abiding in Him. It may look like something. It may be busy. It may fill up the communicator. It may fill up the calendar. There may be a lot of stuff going on. There are some churches so busy they can't even take a breath. I mean, there may be something going on every day of the week, but it doesn't mean it's got the blessing of God on it. Some churches look like Disney World. Some churches look like Jerusalem. It depends on whether you want to be a holy city or a hilarious little town that people like to go and play games. You see, there is a service to be rendered. Now I want to give you some examples of folks that lived during the Bible times that were survivors. They were bent on surviving. Number one was Lot. Lot had to survive. He chose for himself the green fields. He left for his cousin Abraham, he left and he said, well, you can just, you take that over there, but I want the best. I want to be towards Sodom and Gomorrah. He ended up losing his wife and losing his testimony and being shamed because he lost his witness. Samson, 
Samson started out as a great judge, but because he wouldn't discipline his life, he ended up having his eyes gouged out and grinding at the wheel of the enemy. Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira still are around. We don't have many lots and we don't have many Samsons today, but, but Ananias and Sapphira we will always have with us. Ananias and Sapphira were big givers who were really big takers. You know, they're the kind that Jesus warned us about, who come and give their offering and make sure everybody knows it, who sound the horn, let everybody know that they're coming. They're the ones who always try to appear that they are doing more for God than they are really doing for God. They're survivors. The only problem is when you are a big taker and you're trying to be a big giver, God ends up taking your life. That's the principle to remember from Ananias and Sapphira. Nobody gets away with taking anything from God that belongs to God. God always gets it back. The next one is King Saul. Saul became jealous of David. He became uh, wrought within himself and he became turned over to an evil spirit and ultimately committed suicide. Why? Because he tried to survive and tried to hold on to what he thought was his kingdom, not the kingdom God had given him. The ten spies in Canaan. The ten spies in Canaan were interesting. They said, we are just grasshoppers and they are giants. The Canaanites are giants. We're just mere grasshoppers. They had a grasshopper complex. And you see, they said, we can't do it. Now, there's an interesting little parallel between the book of Numbers and the book of Joshua. In the book of Numbers, it says, we're grasshoppers, they're giants. In Joshua chapter 2, when the spies went after 40 years again into the land of promise, Rahab said, we have feared because we have heard of your Lord and you appeared as giants to us. You see, the ten spies saw the promised land from their perspective, not based on God's promises. And they ended up walking around in the desert and eating dust. Now, could I give you just a little thought to live your life by? You're either making dust or you're eating it. You can decide which one you want to do. You're either making dust or you're eating it. The last one is the rich ruler. You remember the rich ruler, he had the opportunity to come to Jesus, but he turned aside and he went away sadly. Why? Because he loved his riches. He would not give them away. He held on to his finances because he thought, that will make me secure. And in holding on to his financial security, he lost the possibility of eternal security. These people tried to survive and they lost. Dr. William Culbertson said, Father, May we end well. F.B. Meyer said, I don't want to end my life in a swamp. I don't want to waste my life. Dr. Havner said they'll always remember the stumble on the last turn of the last mile. You see, you don't want to be a survivor. You want to be a non-survivor. You want to be one who gives themselves for the gospel because when you give your life, you get to keep it. But when you try to keep your life, you lose it. That's the strange paradox of Scripture and the walk with Christ, that what you try to keep, you lose, and what you lose, you keep. Let's talk about some biblical survivals. There were the three uh, Hebrew children. You remember they survived the fire because there was a fourth one who appeared as a son of God in the fire with them. There was Joshua and Caleb. Now, remember... 
The ten spies were non-survivors, were, were survivors, but they didn't survive. Joshua and Caleb were non-survivors. They survived. Every adult was wiped out in the wilderness over a period of 38 years. The only people that got to go into the promised land were the children of those who said, no, we won't do what God says, except for Joshua and Caleb, who at that time were probably 80 to 85 years of age. Isn't it funny? The two that said, we're willing to go over there and die for the land that God's given us, got to go over there and live in the land of promise. The ten that said, we don't want to go over there and sacrifice anything. We don't want it to cost us. We could get killed over there. We'd rather stay in the wilderness, got buried in the wilderness, and you don't know who their names are today. Although they are named in Scripture, nobody remembers them because they were survivors. Joshua and Caleb are remembered because they are non-survivors. Daniel in the lion's den. God turned the lions into vegetarians. That's an interesting feat. John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist pledged his head to heaven and Herod put it on a plate. John lost his head because he was a non-survivor because it was more important for him to confront King Herod and say, you are a sinner than it was for him to be popular in the halls of government. Abraham was a non-survivor. When he took Isaac to Mount Moriah, every promise God had ever given him was wrapped up in his seed, Isaac. And when he took him to offer him as a sacrifice, he was dying to the promise God had made to him, only to find out that God had another way prepared for him. Elijah at Mount Carmel was a non-survivor. He stood before the prophets of Baal, and he called down fire from heaven. These are people who expended themselves for the gospel. They expended themselves for their God. They expended themselves to make a difference. And we remember them, and many of them are listed in the Hall of Fame in the book of Hebrews because they are men of whom the world was not worthy. Now what about being a servant and a steward? 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I ask you to turn there, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Because a team player not only expends himself for others for the team, a team player is a servant and a steward. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Two verses with two words that need to stand out in your mind and in my mind about what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 1. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Now, there are two words, servants and stewards. The word servant that is used here is not doulos, not the common servant. It is huperates. It is a different word. The huperates was a servant who facilitated the desires of his principal. He was the one who carried out the orders of the one who was over him. He was not in charge. He acted on behalf of the one who was in charge. 
Paul says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm a huperates. Jesus Christ is in charge of my life. Jesus Christ is in charge of my ministry. I don't have a ministry except the ministry that Jesus gives me. Where He tells me to go, I go. What He tells me to do, I do. If He sends me on a ship, I go. If He takes me into a land where I'll be stoned, I'll go there. If He takes me where I might be thrown in prison, I'll go there because I am a servant, a huperates of Jesus Christ. It's a great word. Three times, three references I would give you to it. One, John Mark. John Mark was a minister to Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Now, that doesn't mean that John Mark was their pastor. It means that he made their travel arrangements, set up their visas, got their passports, called the hotels, got the rental cars, rolled up the bedrolls, put out the fire, cooked the meals, and made sure they were ready to go. He took care of all the travel arrangements. He was the huperates for Paul on his missionary journey. Now he failed at that job. Only later in life does Paul come back and say, bring Mark to me, for he is useful to me for ministry. It's the same word, huperates, the same word that says, Mark has learned now how to take care of the details when I give him details to take care of. It's used by Jesus in referring to a jailer. That's a surprising way to use this word, but a jailer is a huperates. He is one who facilitates the decisions of his principal or of the decision maker. He used it in Luke 12, 58 when he said, Make an effort to settle with him in order that he may not drag you before the judge and the judge turn you over to the constable and the constable throw you into prison. You see, the jailer doesn't decide what happens. He just does what the judge tells him to do. The jailer is acting on orders from the judge. And the judge dictates when the person goes in and when the person gets out. And the jailer is merely a huperates. He may carry the keys, but the judge is the one that says when he turns a lock. There's a third way that it's used, and it's used in secular Greek and translated as an under rower. How many of you have seen the movie Ben-Hur? Oh good, more of you than are bringing dessert tonight. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> you remember when Ben-Hur is underneath and they're rowing and the captain is at battle speed and they start rowing and they're rowing and rowing. You know, what are they doing? They're under rowers. The captain is up on the deck. He is up on a platform above them. And there is a relationship between the voice of the captain and the servants, the huperates, the under rowers in the ship. They only row at the rate that the captain tells them to row. They don't sit out there and say, hey, I think I want to go this way. And the guys on the other side, well, we want to go that way. They act on the decision of the captain. That's a huperates. You know what you and I are? We are a huperates of Jesus Christ. We are under rowers, and we take Him wherever He wants to go. That's what we do. We are available to Him. We carry out His decisions made in heaven, recorded in His Word through the Great Commission and other key passages that give us our mandate and our mission as a church. And we get together and we get our oars and we go side by side and we pull together and row together to make sure that the gospel ship of the gospel of Jesus Christ gets going to where He wants it to go. Which means... There is no place in the church for those who say, you know, I just don't like my oar. 
I don't like my aura. I don't like. I want a different size. I want a. I want a pink one. How come she always gets to sit in the front and row? I never get to sit in the front and row. Not fair. Not fair. Not fair. Whiny baby. Whiny baby. Not fair. You ever heard that in the church? Ever said it? Hmm. <laughs> well, that's too convicting. What we are is we are the means of facilitating the desires of Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, you are not the means of facilitating the desires of this pastor. You are the means of facilitating the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the issue is the Great Commission, and the issue is Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, and the issue is that we are told to teach and train and baptize and reach and disciple people. The issue is that we are to love the sheep that Jesus has given us, that we are to feed them. The issue is that God has given us clear direction, and He stands in heaven and He says, You row where I tell you to row. And that is never open for debate. It is never open for discussion, for His orders are very clear, and He should never have to repeat them to us who are servants of God. We are also stewards. Stewards of the mysteries of God. We are stewards. A steward is someone who manages a household. It's also a word sometimes translated as a table waiter. We take from the kitchen what the chef has prepared, and we put it on the table the way it's been prepared. The table waiter never goes out and says, you know, I don't like the way that looks. I think that ought to be like that. You just do what the chef tells you to do, and you put it out on the table. We're stewards. We are servants. We are stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, that word mystery is a bad translation. In fact, it is a transliteration of the Greek word mysterion. It's a bad translation because when we think of mysteries, we think of Agatha Christie and John Grisham. John Grisham is a member of First Baptist Church in Oxford, Mississippi. They have a Sunday school class there called the Lawyers Class. It's just a bunch of lawyers. And if you know anything about Oxford, Mississippi, you know that that is the headquarters of Ole Miss. And that's where all the lawyers in Mississippi go to school, and they all come back there, and they stand around in the kitchen, and they discuss issues based on the Bible. John Grisham's a member of that Sunday school class. He has 45 million books in print, made $25 million last year. I thought about calling his pastor to see if he was tithing, but I figured it's none of my business. <laughs> But when we think of mysteries, we think about, oh, it's the chamber of the client, the firm, some Agatha Christie story. But that's not what a mystery is at all. A mystery was something that the people Paul was writing to were very familiar with. They were the secret rites of the cults and mystery religions that nobody really knew what they did. But when you became a part of that cult or that religion, you understood all their secret rights. There are major religions and organizations in America today that have secret rights that if you ask them what they do in their closed sessions, they will not tell you. That is a mystery religion. Be careful. But Paul says we are stewards not of a mystery religion, but of the mysteries of God. Now here's what he's saying. Paul said in a different passage that the preaching of the cross is foolishness for those who are outside. 
You see, the blood of Jesus and the cross and one man dying for all and faith without works, I mean, it's just it's, it's all of faith. It's nothing of works. That you get it, it is by the grace of God that it comes, that you receive the Lord Jesus, and all of that doesn't make sense. It's a mystery until you've received it. And when you receive it, you understand that the cross makes perfect sense. You understand that a blood sacrifice is what is required for sins to be paid. You understand that it means something to you. Why? Because you've become a steward of that mystery. You've begun to manage that mystery in your life and in your household and in your personal affairs, and it has impacted your life. You know the mystery, and you understand it. And the gospel begins to be clear to you. Now let's put that in baseball terminology real quick. There are so many t-ball and baseball and softball and little league and big league and minor league clubs and everything. We got more baseball in this town than we got rats. Everybody understands baseball. There's only one problem. If you're not on the team, you don't understand the signals. You ever been to a ball game? Let's say it's the bottom of the ninth. Two out, two men on base, we're down by one run. Average hitter comes up to the plate. What does the third base coach do? He's, I, he, and everybody in the stands going, what did he say? Except the people on the team who know the signals. They know exactly what he said. You see, he didn't stand up to us and say, but, but, but. He just, and the guy goes, I'm supposed to but. Clear to me. You know why? Because he's on the team. And he understands the signals for that team. You and I are stewards of the signals of God. God has given us signals clearly defined in His Word about how a man is to be saved, how a Christian is to live, how a church is to function. And it's no mystery to us. We are merely stewards of what we know. Are you a good steward of what you know? Now, a team player is a winner. Let me just go through these real quick. J.S. Housen in his book, The Metaphors of Paul, said the gym or place of training and the stadium or ground for running were among the most conspicuous and most frequented spots in the architect of the cities. Sports was almost a religion among the Greeks. Almost a religion in America, too. And so it is natural. In fact, Paul did it. Jesus did it by telling parables. Paul did it in the Greek culture. The Olympic Games were not a part of the Jewish culture, but it was a part of the Greek and Roman culture. And so Paul looked around and said, hmm, sports is a big deal to these people. So what I'm going to do is when I get them saved, I'm going to get them to understand that serving Christ is like being a disciplined athlete. And nobody wins by accident. People win by discipline. So I'm going to get the church to understand by a runner and by a fighter, and by other illustrations from the gym and from track and from the Olympic Games, I'm going to help the church understand that athletics is a picture of the kind of discipline that the body of Christ ought to have. 
So Paul just took the culture, baptized it, and said, you use it for this, I'm going to use it for the glory of God, which is exactly what we're trying to do. First of all, winning players and teams enjoy the challenge. Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. Winning players and team enjoy the challenge. It is said if you want to be a great football team in college, you don't play a bunch of patsy schools. You play the best. Because when you play the best, you always have to rise to the occasion. Jesus faced temptation. He faced the test. He faced the trials. He faced the cross because the challenge of the cross was worth it for Him even though He would suffer physically, even though He would suffer spiritually, even though He would cry out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? He knew that on the other side of the cross was resurrection and on the other side of the resurrection was redemption for man. And so there was a challenge and He took the challenge. He said, I'll pay the price for sin. Secondly, winning teams and players are disciplined. Paul said to Timothy, bodily discipline is only for little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. Paul said, I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. He said in 2 Timothy 2.5, And also if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. You see, there are rules for the game, but there are also rules for training. Do you remember Ben Johnson, the Olympic athlete who won the gold, but he had to give it back? Why? Because he used steroids. He did not cheat in the actual game, but he cheated by using steroids to increase his athletic ability before the race. And so by breaking the training rules, he was disqualified. Athletes are kicked off of teams because they violate curfews and break the training rules. Why? Because the coach knows that everybody on the team has to do the same thing and abide by the same rules. There can't be any favorites. There are no favorites. There are no specials. Everybody's got to be treated the same. The reason that Bear Bryant had the respect that he had at Alabama is because when Joe Namath broke the rules, he put him on the bench even when a bowl game was on the line. That's what you call being disciplined. You and I have to be disciplined. Winning players number three are focused. Paul said, this one thing I do. Have you noticed how many things we do? Paul said, this one thing I do. Have you ever sat down and asked God, God, what is it about my life that you can use and you can bless that I can spend the rest of my life doing? You see, I know there are things I'm not good at. And so it's no need for me to spend my life and my energy trying to be good at something that God didn't call me to be good at or gift me or equip me to be good at. So I can live my life frustrated, keep trying to put a square peg in a round hole, or I can do what God has called me to do. The problem with us is most of us are not focused. We do not have the mentality of Paul which says, this one thing I do. We're running in every lane we can run in. We're trying to play every position we can play. We're trying to do so much. And God's saying, look, find out what it is that I bless in your life and do it with all your heart. Winning teams are focused. Why do teams lose? 
It's when they forget their opponent on this day, looking out at the bigger opponent that they face the next day. You always lose if you lose your focus of the day in which you live. Next, winning teams and winning players set goals. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Winning players and teams set goals. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Winning players and winning teams set goals. You know why we do what we do? Not so people down here will say, well done, but so that we'll get the eternal Word of God that says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's the imperishable. It's not wood, hay, and stubble. It's gold, silver, and precious stone. It's not the recognition of men. It's the recognition of God on our lives that we have used our lives not in foolishness and not in fleeting pleasure, but we have used our lives faithfully serving the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark Spitz was the first athlete to ever win seven Olympic gold medals. He did that in 1972. When Spitz was interviewed and talked about how he trained, he began to swim as a young boy. His dad would take him down to the pool, and he would have him swim, and after he would swim for a while, he would say, Mark, how many lanes are in this pool? And Mark would say, there are six. And he would say, son, how many lanes win? And Mark would say, one. And his dad would say, just win your lane. Just win your lane. You see, you have to be focused and you have to set goals. What's your goal? You're just going to aimlessly drift through life? I shared with a group of men earlier this week, and I said, I want you to ask you to take your life and on a three-by-five card, write down the purpose of your life. What do you live for? Why are you here? Why does God give you another day? Because you see, if you can't write down your purpose for life on a three-by-five card, brother, they can't put it on your tombstone, and nobody will know why you lived or died. Set a goal for the high calling of Jesus Christ. And then finally, winning athletes know how to practice teamwork. Paul says in Philippians 1.27, we strive together for the faith of the gospel. There's a laboring together is the way that's translated in Philippians 4. It is a striving together. It is a working together. Winning athletes know how to practice teamwork. You see, even Paul understood that a team cannot win with one player. And most teams with one player who happens to be a hot dog never win. You see, the team has to be together. And winning teams and winning players practice teamwork. They pull together, they work together. Somebody has described a football game as 50,000 people badly in need of exercise cheering on 22 people who are in badly in need of rest. 
You see, there's no, in, in our ball diamond, there are no spectators. Everybody has to find a place on the field. Everybody has to find something to do. You say, well, I enjoy being a spectator. There'll be a day when you won't enjoy being a spectator. And that'll be the day when God hands out the rewards and His well-dones for those who have played the game of life according to His rules. And then when you go up and there's nothing to give you, and there's no well done, you got saved, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians, as by fire. I call that saved but singed, getting just by the seat of your pants. And who wants to go to heaven that way? You got a testimony? Are you committed to teamwork? We had some baseball hats made up this week. Staff's all signed up to do this, and almost 900 of our members have signed up to play and to be a part of what we're doing and then signed up to play positions. And it's been incredible for us to look, and we've got those names on boards. In fact, it's taken almost three walls to put up those names and to see how all these people have signed up and said they're willing to go to work. And so we had some hats made up this week, and I got some for all the staff. It says, Catch the Spirit, Play Ball. That's what we're about. You see, what we want to happen is we want you to catch the Spirit. Allow the Holy Spirit, first of all, to capture you. And then catch the Spirit. And then when you go out in this community, say, you know, we've caught the Spirit at Sherwood. And somebody say, oh, now they got the gift. No, we just caught the Spirit. <laughs> just caught the Spirit. Catch the Spirit. Play ball. Have you caught the Spirit? Are you ready to play ball? You see, Sherwood, but more importantly, the head coach, Jesus Christ, needs everybody on the field playing their position. And if you don't play, there's going to be a hole in our defense and the enemy's going to get a shot in. And it will be because you weren't where you were supposed to be doing what God told you to do. So I want to ask you to catch the Spirit 